0: The reading of God's Word this morning is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate ate, nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, And go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. has sent me, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Well, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Uh, I'm not Nathan Turquie, clearly not Nathan Turquie, but that's all right. Um, Nathan is a very dear uh, friend of mine from quite some time. Uh, Nathan and I used to serve together in um, your campus ministry, and since about half of your faces are incredibly familiar, even though I hadn't seen you in quite some time, I hope I don't have to introduce to you uh, the Ministry of Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF for short. Uh, RUF is, again, the PCA's official campus ministry presence now spread out on some 100, 135 some odd campuses across uh, the country right now. Uh, I was able to serve back in the late 90s here at the University of Memphis uh, before moving down to Old Miss in 1999 uh, and have been there ever since. But about two years ago, uh, I changed my position to uh, function as an area coordinator director type. Uh, So I help oversee the RUFs in Alabama, Mississippi, West Tennessee, and Arkansas. And it's almost as boring as it just sounded. Um, (laughs) uh, And though it's boring to sort of describe to you, I can tell you that I have not had something be more gratifying to me than being able to do what I've done for the last two years. The reason is, is because I get a chance to see from a bit of a wider perspective than the painful myopia of Oxford, Mississippi, um, what God is doing on our campuses. Listen, it is unbelievable to see how God is moving among college students in our world. Um, So much of the things that you hear in the newspapers and in the news stories are not true for not so tiny little corners of campuses all over your area where students are being converted where they're hearing the gospel, where they're being called out of um, frightening kinds of places into God's grace. And it's really beautiful. And again, there's so many familiar faces. I know that you remember that. And so my main purpose, at least my little bit of selfish purpose of being here this morning, is to beg you to pray for us. Please, please, please pray for RUF. Please pray for the campus ministers that are represented uh, by my area, about 21 guys. Uh, who see campuses around. We've got open campuses that need replacement campus ministers. We've got campus ministers that are struggling with what they're going to do next. We have campus ministers that are buckling under the burden of such a huge need. Students coming around RUF in numbers that we could never conceive of 10 years ago. And so please, please don't stop praying for the ministry of Reform University Fellowship and RUF. We are your arm. Uh, going here to the University of Memphis and to Rhodes. And so if you would remember to remember us, we would be grateful. So along that theme, uh, I was grateful for Trace to read uh, this passage from Acts chapter 9, and you've got it there in front of you as we consider it this morning. Um, I'll say this, and I'm I'm shamelessly going to mention this because she wouldn't want me to do it, but I'm glad that we have a special guest here. (laughs) Don't wince. Uh, my mom came and showed up here this morning, so even at 45 years old, you can bring your mommy to work um, on Sunday mornings, but uh, Ginger Newsom is my mother, and she's awesome, and I'm glad she's here, and so I would like to draw a lot of attention her way, because goodness knows that's what she likes. Um, anyway, <laughs> so I, I, I did have lunch plans for after church today, but they've been canceled suddenly um, after that comment. I'm kidding. Um, I love to come back to Memphis because it brings back a lot of memories. I uh, was born here and uh, was raised here, uh, went to ECS down the street, wherever I am here. Uh, And I remember, it's strange at age 45, the kind of memories that your mind holds on to from high school. We had a fundraiser one time, my junior year uh, at ECS, where we would put on the the ever-popular car wash. And somehow we had found ourselves uh, at some very busy corner in Bartlett, and I'm afraid that I've been away too long to know exactly where this was. Uh, but somewhere on Stage Road, there was a, 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 a convenience store that had let us use their area there for a car wash that we had. My job that I'd been given uh, by our sponsors was to drum up business. And so I was given sort of a, a large poster, a board uh, where I wrote on it um, uh, free car wash. And it was a free car wash. you were supposed to get so many and we got pledges and things like that. So I began to um, sort of dance in and out of traffic on stage road, uh, trying to drum up business. Now, uh, you know, back then I was a little more energetic than I am in my calm state now. And um, I, I found my way into sort of, strange it is, obnoxious ways of trying to gather business. You know, putting the poster board directly in front of people's windshields, making sure that they acknowledged my presence, knew that we were there, you know, trying to point people into the sort of parking lot of the thing. When all of a sudden I heard the voice of someone sort of shouting at me, young man, young man. And as I looked, I realized that an elderly gentleman uh, with an elderly wife in the passenger side had pulled over to the side of the road and was, was calling and motioning me over. And so I sort of walked over thinking, thinking maybe he wants to know, you know about the quality of our car wash. I don't know, what, what's the deal? And the man rolled down his window, and, and there was no, hello, how are you doing, I'm so-and-so. Literally, the first thing that he said is he said, young man, are you converted? Again, as a, as a junior in high school, I... I don't even remember exactly what I said except to stammer through something and say, well, well, yes, see, we're here with a Christian school and we're doing, a, we're doing a, a, a car wash. And, of course, he began to talk about how dangerous it is to dance in and out of traffic on stage road. But the funny thing was is the question stuck with me. Because here I am, never mind how many years later, still dwelling on a question that I think that even this morning, if you have only had peripheral exposure to Christianity, you've heard Christian people say, because there's something that the Bible places high value upon in suggesting that coming into the realm of Christianity, that is, embracing the doctrines of Christianity... Are more than just a tangential part of your life. That there is that there's something that happens inside of a person. There's a, a transformation. There, there's, a, there's, there's a threshold that you cross. So profound that it is that people would call it being converted. I was converted. We have in Acts chapter 9 that we're going to consider this morning really the poster child of New Testament conversions. And the reason why I say that is for two reasons. Number one, because we see the Holy Spirit come and topple the religious establishment's golden boy. The Apostle Paul, at this time Saul, was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the religious establishment's best thing they could produce and the Holy Spirit comes and plows through his life in this dramatic change that we call the book, The Acts of the Apostles. It's not about the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit as he comes and absolutely changes people. The other reason, though, why I think it's that way is because this story gets repeated three times in the book of Acts. Three times we get the people telling this story, and so I take that to mean that we are supposed to see something in Saul's life that we connect with. As we ask ourselves the question, can I relate to this? Now, some of you, small little side note, so we can clear some air before we dive into this. I know for a lot of people, they look and go, okay, where are we going with this? Because this is kind of a big, dramatic, over-the-top conversion story here. I mean, a light came down and somebody got knocked down by it and there was a voice. And, and I've always been a little insecure about that because, you know, when I became a Christian, I, there weren't any big lights. There weren't a whole lot of Steven Spielberg special effects that went along with me becoming a Christian. How can I relate to a story like this? I think that's a good question. But I think when you take a step back and see the meaning of what happened to Saul in this experience you might see something profound. Three things that I want to look at this morning that happened to Saul that we are supposed to connect with. First, we see the preparing God. Secondly, we see a vision of Jesus. And then thirdly, we see an entrance into a community. Those are the three things. A preparing God, the vision of Jesus, and an entrance into a community. Look at this first one. Again, the reason why I I mentioned that part about people not having dramatic conversions is because this story unnerves a lot of Christian people. We see Saul here as a man absolutely obsessed in verse 1 and 2. Murderous threats against the disciples, so much so, that he begins to plan their execution and march forward. In other words, Saul begins to persecute the church with a zeal that no one could match. Something is going on. He is over the top. There's a little commentary on the book of Acts by a guy named John Stott, whom we just lost recently in Christendom. But he makes this point that a lot of people look at Paul, Saul, and they say, now that's the kind of conversions we need more of today. Here's a guy who was marching down in life, headed exactly the opposite of where God was taking him, and all of a sudden, wham, everything turns around and nothing looks the same afterwards. We need more conversions like Saul. That's what happened to me. Now, I'm not denying this morning that those things happen. You yourself may tell a story or a testimony of how God just completely shifted things around. But I'm convinced, and so is John Stott, so you don't think it's just me, are convinced that actually that's not what's happening here. This is not the first time that Saul has had Jesus begin to work in his life. Rather, I think there's something going on a little bit deeper than that. You get some evidence of this in uh, Acts chapter twenty-six, where Paul is standing before King Agrippa, one of the the many places where he was taking the mission of the church to, and he tells this same story, but he adds a detail that gets left out in Acts chapter nine, that when the voice from heaven looks and says, "Saul, Saul, why are you con- why are you uh, um, persecuting me?" that the voice then says to him, "It is." hard for you to kick against the goads you ever heard remember that phrase kicking against the goads and all your life you thought to yourself what in the world is a goad well a goad was nothing more than just a really sharp spear that a shepherd would use to to give little stabs at the behinds of sheep in order to motivate them to get them along it was a a painful way of motivation And when Jesus comes to Saul, he says, Saul, I want you to know that your persecution of me is like someone kicking against a sharp spear. For some reason, I always get uncomfortable when I think about this. (laughs) What would it do to your shins and your feet if you were kicking against sharp spears? You would be torn up. You would be crippled by it. So what Jesus, what the vision of Jesus is saying to Saul is, is is up until this time, Saul, you have been doing great harm to your own person. I've been working on you, Saul. They're little stabs that my shepherd heart have been giving to you to try to bring you to where I got you today. And what's interesting is, is I think the New Testament tells us what those goads were. There's two examples of him, in my opinion. The first one happens just a couple of, um, of books before, in the book of, uh, of Romans, the book after, actually, Acts Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul is talking about his time before he became a Christian in the first part of Romans 7. second half is uh, describing a Christian experience, but before, he's talking about his relationship to the Ten Commandments. Have all ever done a study through the Ten Commandments? It's a brutal study. Because from a distance, you look at the Ten Commandments, and you think, I'm doing okay by that. I mean, I don't think I've murdered anybody. I know that's one that's in there, and uh, I think there's something there about uh, Sundays, and so I don't think I really do anything bad there. I'm okay when it comes to the Ten Commandments. But then someone starts to unfold it for you, <laughs> and how the Bible really unpacks those. Well, Saul says he had a similar experience. Paul, he says, everything seemed to be going well until I got to Commandment 10. You see, commandment 10 says, you shall not covet. In other words, it says that you are never supposed to be in a place where you are dissatisfied with what God has given you at any time and at any moment and at any of life circumstances. Always content, always thrilled with whatever it is he's given you. So Paul says that when that commandment came in, do you remember how he says it in Romans 7? I died. I died. I died on the inside. Something in me died. In other words, this whole pride, this whole thing about being like, I'm doing okay by the Ten Commandments. Suddenly, my house of cards came falling down. What was that? It was a goad. It was a little stab to the heart of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you. This life you're living is hard for you, is it not? The second evidence we get of the goad, I think, happens just a chapter before the story we we're just reading. There's a story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. You remember this story? Stephen stands up and makes this great testimony for Jesus, and they begin to stone him to death. Stoning to death. I can't even imagine stoning to death. But in the midst of his stoning, and after his passing, he has this glorious vision of looking up into the heavens, and he dies so bravely. It's an incredibly inspiring story. At the very end of the chapter of the story, beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, do you remember what it says? And Saul was there presiding over it all. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Saul, his heart raging against God, to see Stephen bleeding the way in which he did, and yet dying so bravely. Man, how that must have cut against his heart. What's the point? The point is this. When someone is converted, they have this experience of looking back into their own personal history and saying to themselves, you know, I think that was God. They look back at the pain in which they are even maybe presently experiencing the manifestation of. And they say, this is God that's calling me through this. He's moving me. These are His hands. Wait a minute. These things are just too coincidental to be random. I think I see a hand behind this. I've had this a number of occasions, but it was really a delight oftentimes when students would come into my office when I was on campus. And they would talk about the train wreck that they had made of their lives up until that point in college. Or at least the emptiness that they felt for the first time. And they would sit down with me and they would say, I don't know what's going on. Everything seems to be going wrong. I can't sort of motivate myself to get up out of the bed in the morning. It seems like there are no colors anywhere everything seems to be collapsing down around me and I just can't find God in it. And I love to look at them and say, but you know what? I think he may have found you. And there was not one time, it didn't happen that many times, but a handful of times, there was not one time where a student didn't look back at me and say, that's exactly what I think. It seems like he's had his hand in it. He's preparing something. Yes, it's intuitive. But there's a moment at which every Christian, in the midst of his conversion, looks back and says, It is hard to kick against the goads. Do you relate to that? Can you see that happening in your life? Because there's a preparing God that begins the uh, the experience of conversion for us. But there's something else, number two, which is really the most dramatic part of it. There is a vision of Jesus. I mean, come on, some of you are saying, okay, preacher boy, I get the first part. Um, Oh, yes, 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 the preparing God, I see it there in the text, whatever. But what about this big light? I mean, surely that doesn't happen anymore. And I actually would agree with you. I think those miraculous manifestations of of God's spirit, I think, are saved for a certain time that came with the apostles. It's a whole other story. Nathan's going to explain all of that to you in the weeks to come, having dropped that in there. But I'll say this, I think the meaning of the event is interesting. And we often miss it because we raced past it too quickly. Notice what the heavenly voice says, what Jesus says. Saul is walking down the street, okay? He's with his friends. A blinding light hits him, knocking him to the ground. And all of a sudden, having been knocked to the ground, the voice says, why are you persecuting me? The reason why that's a little bit funny is because you're the one on the ground. <laughs> you can imagine if I walked, someone walked up to you this morning, someone sort of, uh, you know, stout and strong, walked up to you and sort of punched you in the chest, so much so that you staggered and fell to the ground and then hung over you and said, why are you persecuting me? You might think to yourself, you know, um, who's persecuting who? <laughs> or you might say, um, who are you, Lord? Like what the text says. Who are you, Lord? (laughs) There clearly was some mistake here. Uh, uh, I'm not persecuting you. you You're too majestic and too wonderful. And he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he begins to talk about these letters that he has in his hands. You're going against me. Those letters are people that you're going against me. And it's almost as if Saul thinks to himself, Oh, so sorry, I got it. Now I see the confusion. You see, I wasn't trying to persecute you. I mean, you're, you're too majestic and too wonderful and too powerful. See, see, I was going after these Christian people down here in Damascus. Those are the folks that I was after. And Jesus communicates something to Paul, now Saul getting ready to be Paul, that would become the very basis of every single thing that he wrote from then on. Because it's as if Jesus looks at him and says, What's the difference? You see, Saul, you've got to understand one more, most foundational issue. That if you go after my people, it's the same thing as going after me. Because the union and communion between me and my people is so profound and so rich and so spiritually motivated that what may be said to be true of me is now true of them. Why? Because what was true of them became true of me. I just raced right past that. we got to unpack that. Jesus says, listen, Saul, the relationship between my people is such that now I can look at them and say, what was true about me, that is that I am the son of God with all of the rights and privileges of being an heir to His glory, that now, because they are, and the way Paul will say it for the rest of the New Testament, is in me, or in Christ, now that they are there, what is true of me is now true of them. That they get all the rights and privileges of being a son of God. That's what what was true about me became true of them. And they will be cloaked in the same glory and the same resurrected body that I am going to be cloaked, that I'm cloaked in now. Now that's a shocking statement. Doesn't mean that we're going to go be gods, but we are joint heirs with Jesus in the glory that is to come. You would be it would be understandable for you to say, how in the world can that be? Well, here's the answer: Because on the cross, what was true about us. Became true about him. You see this? What did Jesus become on the cross. Except he took on my shame. He took on my sin. He took on all of the things. That even this morning plague. To separate us. Like we read about. In that wonderful confession of sin. All of those things. The Christian believes. And Jesus was teaching. Hung on me. So that there is therefore now. No condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. You see what Jesus is saying to Saul? Man, this freaks Saul out. Paul would write everything on the base of this. Just a real quick smattering here. But Paul would say, when Jesus died, we died with him. We were buried with him in Romans 6. Ephesians 2, 6. Listen to this. When he was seated and raised, we were raised and seated with him. Do you ever read things like that in Ephesians and think to yourself, well, I wasn't really seated and raised. I mean, I'm seated right here in the middle of a Grace Community Church in somewhere in East Memphis or Cordova. That's where I am. What do you mean seated and raised? He means that God treats you as if. God looks at you as if you're his son. So whatever was true, let me keep going. It's not getting it. Come on. Paul suddenly gets to the very heart to be in union with Christ. All the times where he says that that you had died with him, you were raised again into newness of life, Romans 6 says. Everything that Paul said afterwards was something that was granted to us by the transfer of Jesus' merit to us. Let me try this. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, great old uh, Welsh preacher, revivalist, uh, spent most of his ministry in London, has a great story that he tells, I'm assuming happened all the time, and Ian Murray put it in his biography, where Lloyd-Jones would love to go up to people after speaking to them about spiritual things and would say, well, you know, having heard the message of the cross and heard the root of Christianity, are you now ready to call yourself a Christian? Would you call yourself a Christian? Are you a Christian? And Lloyd-Jones said, invariably, the person would look and say, well, I know what you're saying, but... To be honest with you, I'm trying. And Lloyd-Jones, in a very classic Lloyd-Jonesian way, would say something to the effect of, then you don't understand the first principle of Christianity. Because Christianity is not that you're trying at all. It's that he did something and I am in him. That's where it starts. You don't even get past the go until we get to that point. Union with Christ, to be connected to Him. It's Saul sees it and the lights come on. What does it mean to be converted? You see a preparing God, but you catch a vision of Jesus as being more than just words on a page. Thirdly, I'll finish with this. And this one honestly is the most countercultural for our day. God sends Saul into a community of people. Didn't happen on his own. God never lets Saul be a Christian by himself. That's the point. There is not, In other words, God does not do this transformation in Saul and prepare him for a lifetime of ministry as if he is an isolated individual. Rather what he does, rather what he says is, is I need you to go and be in relationship with people. Why? I think it's absolutely essential for two reasons. Number one, so that they can make sense of their experience. Look, and again, this is one of those weird things of getting older, and not to be too philosophical about it, but if you had those experiences in whatever age you are in, where you start to ask yourself a question, what just happened? See, see, some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. I'm finding that the older I get, the harder it is to describe what happened? Well, can you tell me what happened? I'm like, well, there seemed to be this and there seemed to be that. That the best I can do is grasp at those things. I think that there is, a, there is a tyranny of the mind when it is the least connected to other people that can spin you out into confusion to where when it comes down to it, you can't say which way is up and which way is down. And so I think that the Christian inertia is to say, look, the only way in which you can make sense of this explosion of the Spirit to help you reinterpret all the past events around what God is doing to give you a glorious vision of Jesus in the now, the only way you're going to work that out is by talking to someone else. Sharing it with someone else. Sharing someone else's life. Let me give you one small example. This is what occurred to me this week as I was preparing this. Have you noticed how strange it is how often the Bible encourages us in the midst of our sin to go and confess it to one another? You who are spiritual, you know, so if you know someone who's caught in a sin, go, restore such a one. The word always happens in connection. There's a proverb that says that he who conceals a matter harms himself. But whoever confesses his sins is healed. <laughs> Why do we have that wisdom coming from the Bible? Because we cannot know who we are until we know who we are in connection to someone else. The more isolated you are, the less Christian you are, is what the Scripture is saying. God brings Paul to Ananias so that he can suddenly make sense of what in the world has just happened. But I think there's a second reason. I think He sends him not only to make sense of the world, but also to heal Saul look, Saul just got struck blind, y'all. And if you're an Old Testament scholar like Saul was, a Pharisee who knew everything, you knew what, the, what blindness was. When you were struck blind, that was the judgment of God. Blindness throughout the Old Testament is an evidence that God gave to judge people. And can you imagine this man sitting, praying? That's what it, he's God, Jesus tells Ananias that there's a man and he's there and he's praying. Could you just see him sweating all night? Because it's not just physical blindness. The physical blindness is not the point. The point for Saul is that am I now on the wrong side of God's justice? And there's a darkness that sort of wraps around him. And so Jesus says, Ananias, I need you to go. I need you to go and speak to this man. Because he wants to know what's going on. And he needs to be healed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine then what it was for the soul of Saul, soon to be Paul. To have the very first words that are ever spoken to him by a Christian in this context be the word. Brother Saul. (laughs) Brother Saul. He embraces him as a brother In that moment. In order to begin the process of smoothing over and saying, look, I know the judgment that you feel. I know the judgment that you are looking at and realizing rests upon your shoulders. But I now want to embody. (laughs) I now want to embody the compassion that he has shown to me, to you, so that you can experience it that much more tangibly. That's what you sang this morning. I read it. I thought, this applies. What boundless love, what fathomless grace you have shown us, O God of compassion. Each day we live in offering of praise as we show to the world your compassion. That's the way it works. We begin to give to others what we know we've received from Him. And what's the result? The result is someone who is converted. Because they saw a preparing God because they got a vision of jesus that was more than just words on a page and they were entered into a community a community which by the way and this is a matter of encouragement for your church a community which by the way at first kind of had a little bit of a problem with this i'm encouraged by ananias being like uh him oh not him in other words, Christians typically have a hard time with this early on. Be encouraged that that's actually okay. To have that pit in your stomach when you walk in and think, "Okay, I'm going to invite this person to church. I'm going to ask him. I'm going to do it. It's going to be weird and I'm going to do it. Or, when you walk in the doors and you're like, oh, it's them. I knew it. I knew God was going to do this. Here they are. They're at church. Fantastic. It's not easy. There's something inside of us that grates against it. But look at the power. You don't get a whole lot more about Ananias after this story. He has got a teeny tiny part of this story. But what did that brother launch? By saying, brother Saul. Oh, I don't know. The guy who's the author of the books of a third of the New Testament. Look, y'all. Sometimes it's just the tiniest cup of water that we offer a child in Jesus' name that Jesus says, I'll tell you, you'll never lose your reward. It's the tiniest little things. The tiniest little extension into the life of someone else. And eventually, they'll get to the other side of it, and they'll look back and say, I I think I was converted. And it's worth us asking. And if you're paying attention, you can say to yourself, you know something, less. It actually sounds like this is something that keeps going on. I had one of my favorite conversations with a student just from a couple of years ago, right before I was sort of wrapped up my time on campus. I remember this young man sitting in my office who had come from a very typical background, somewhat vaguely Southern religious, uh, but it was often the periphery, had come to college and sort of watched the bottom drop out. And he looked and as he sat in my office, he said, look, I think that Jesus has been dealing with me all my life. But I don't know, it seems like in the last couple months, it's like getting converted all over and over again. And you know what? I think that's fair. I think that's fair. That when Christians discover this afresh, that they see God in their past, that all of a sudden that vision of Jesus becomes more real, more substantive, more experiential. And they find one more person to extend their life into. Stuff happens. It feels like getting converted. <coughs> Can you say that? Can I say that? (coughs) In that interest, let's pray. (coughs) Lord Jesus, even as my words fail me, we pray that Your Word would not, that what we see in the life of Saul Now, Paul would be true of us. Father, there's too many people in this room for there not to be hidden pain that feels random, that feels like there is no one at the wheel of the universe. And it feels as if oftentimes when we hear Your name, we set You to the periphery. And it feels like oftentimes even in places like this, we can be lonely so, Lord Jesus, would you do in us what you did for Paul? Would you make us to be converted? Change us. Make us different people. And give us the grace to lean upon you. Safe. Secure. In a way in which we never were before. Father, for that one soul in this room that may be thinking to himself, that's never happened to me. Would you draw them in? Would you make this morning be the occasion of them coming to know you, perhaps even for the first time? And in so doing, let us rejoice because of it. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What a person.